Let Me Tell You a Story, Podcast 21. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're talking about people today, but it's not gossip. We're talking about how our personalities differ and how those differences affect our relationships, our social life, our purpose, and our work. Today, author and speaker, counselor, and life coach, Andy Johnson reads from his newest book, Introvert Revolution, Leading Authentically in a World that Says You Can't. But before he reads, I'd like to introduce his subject matter with a couple lines from a best-selling book by Susan Cain titled, Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Susan writes, Our lives are shaped as profoundly by personality as by gender or race, and the single most important aspect of personality, the north and south of temperament, as one scientist puts it, is where we fall on the introvert-extrovert spectrum. In the summer of 1954, Joanne Scheibel, a young graduate student at the University of Washington, became pregnant. Her boyfriend, Abdul Fattah John Jandali, was a Syrian immigrant and fellow student at the university. Scheibel belonged to a white, conservative Christian family and could not convince her parents to allow her to marry a Muslim Arab. The young mother saw no available option but to put the child she was carrying up for adoption. Her only requirement was that the child be adopted by two college graduates. The identified adoptive couple, an educated attorney and his college-educated wife, were scheduled to adopt the young boy but reneged at the last minute, preferring a girl instead. Joanne's boy was adopted by an uneducated couple living in San Francisco, California. Their adopted son would never complete college but would go on to become one of the most famously successful entrepreneurs of all time. Paul and Clara Jobs adopted their first son, Steve, at birth on February 24, 1955. Jobs, famous for his founding role of not only Apple Computer but also Next and Pixar, epitomizes the Yang leader. Driven and optimistic at Apple, he took the genius ideas of co-founder Steve Wozniak and parlayed the new inventions into a multi-billion dollar business. Jobs leveraged his Yang nature to win the hearts, minds, and wallets of a generation. For those who worked closely with Jobs, he was a driven and at times ruthless man. He was notoriously known as a fast-paced and out-of-the-box thinker. Wozniak said in retrospect that no one could contradict him. Jeff Raskin, a key part of the Macintosh project, said of Jobs, He's a dreadful manager. I've always liked Steve. I've found it impossible to work for him. Jobs regularly misses appointments. He acts without thinking and with bad judgment. He does not give credit where due. His leadership style, for better and worse, made Apple what it became. Jobs, the man, was complicated. 
In addition to his extroverted traits, he also had a, a huge lack of sensitivity, often using his ability to read people and their vulnerabilities as a means of gaining advantage. He often used his charisma to manipulate people and was known as someone who struggled with telling the truth. Those who worked with him called this his reality distortion field, a confounding melange of a charismatic rhetorical style, indomitable will, and eagerness to bend any fact to fit the purpose at hand. Jobs was a driven, powerful, charismatic, and larger-than-life figure obsessed with the creation of the types of products Apple has created. I'm writing this book on an Apple computer. My laptop and all of the other innovative Apple products would not exist were it not for Steve Jobs' leadership in the field of technology. The ideas and inventions of Apple Computer have changed the world. Yang leaders are invaluable for being agents of this revolutionary kind of change. On August 11, 1950, 15 years to the day before the beginning of the riots in Watts, a male child was born to a couple in Sunnyvale, California. His father, Jerry, had a knack for putting things together and an interest in electronics. Steve, the firstborn in his family, followed in his father's footsteps and was similarly gifted at assembling things. He loved Tom Swift books, which focused on great adventures. As an adolescent, Steve entered the junior high science fair with a homemade computer of sorts that played tic-tac-toe. He enjoyed learning from his teacher, John McCallum, who also led the electronics club at school. Steve was an awkwardly social young man who never had a date, let alone a girlfriend, during high school. He was, however, an expert prankster. When Steve graduated from high school, he went off to the University of Colorado. His first semester, he lived in the freshman dorm. Steve soon lost interest in college life and moved home to attend De Anza Community College for the remainder of the year. In the fall, he enrolled at UC Berkeley, where he would soon meet not only Captain Crunch, the eventual inventor of the first blue box, but also another young entrepreneur he would eventually partner with to change the world in the context of the Homebrew Computer Club. Famously, Steve created the first version of the Atari game Breakout. His friend, a fellow Homebrew member and neighbor, had asked him to create the software in only four days, and then took more than 50% of the bonus they received from Atari for the project. Who was this neighbor and friend? The young entrepreneur, Steve Jobs. This creative genius game designer was Steve Wozniak. The Jobs-Wozniak tandem would go on to collaborate on the first personal computers as part of a small, unknown startup company known as Apple Computer. Wozniak, Woz, typifies the quiet leader, the yin side of the equation, His attention to detail and deep loyalty to both people and causes are typical of yin leaders. For Wozniak, his dedication to jobs was key to the success and creativity of Apple. Wozniak's sense of loyalty extended beyond jobs and Apple. Many are not aware of Wozniak's commitment to the US Festival, an event started by Woz with the help of the famous concert promoter Bill Graham. As a reaction to the me generation of the 70s, Steve wanted to start a community-minded event that was more about us. The first Us Festival event was held at Glen Helen Regional Park in DeVore, California in the fall of 1982. Waz's commitment to jobs and to the first Us Festival typifies the loyalty and group orientation in Yin leaders. 
Waz normally preferred to work behind the scenes, even being the comedic voice on the other end of the phone on the dial-a-joke line he created. Wozniak distinguished himself from Steve Jobs as follows. Steve's contributions could have been made without so many stories about him terrorizing folks. I like being more patient and not having so many conflicts. I think a company can be a good family. If the Macintosh project had been my way, things probably would have been a mess. But I think if it had been a mix of both our styles, it would have been better than just the way Steve did it. Wozniak and Jobs were a perfect yin and yang partnership. Woz was the real brains of the operation who liked to work creatively behind the scenes. Jobs, on the other hand, liked being the visible leader. Together, they accomplished things neither could likely have accomplished alone. A balanced you. Not only is the world balanced or seeking balanced, you as an individual also have a need for this balance. This intrapersonal he, pronounced huh, a Chinese word talking about the balance of yin and yang, is a healthy recognition of not only the way you connect with those around you in healthy interdependence, but also the way you are uniquely and independently you. Reid Hoffman, the introverted founder of LinkedIn, had a great phrase to describe this reality. He calls this, I to the we. Hoffman explains that an individual's power is raised exponentially with the help of a team, a network. But just as zero to the 100th power is still zero, there's no team without the individual. It's not an either or, but a both and. The team needs the individual strengths you bring, and you wouldn't be able to leverage those strengths for maximum benefit without the team on which you depend. You'll notice that the yin-yang symbol illustrates a drop of each in the other. In other words, you have some of each. A healthy self involves aspects of both your yin collective self and your yang individual self. Healthy people, though they embrace their own place on the continuum, recognize the opposite principle in themselves. Cultural psychologist Marcus and Connor give a new prescription for psychological health. To build a more prosperous and peaceful world, everyone must be both independent and interdependent. This means that people who tend to be more independent will have to hone their interdependence, while people who tend to be more interdependent will need to polish their independence. From either side of yin or yang, though leanings or biases remain, one can begin to see the truth that Carl Jung spoke. There is no such thing as a pure introvert or a pure extrovert. Such a person, Jung said, would be in the lunatic asylum. As an impure introvert, you have drops of yang inside you. Being your complete self means owning all aspects of you and seeking to maintain your personal balance. Embrace your introverted uniqueness and your need for interdependence at the same time. The good life, wholeness. Human civilization, according to many ancient traditions, began one composite whole. Over time, we've degenerated into many warring factions and sects. We've become polarized as male against female, white against black, extrovert against introvert, yang against yin. The struggle is not new. 
According to the Jewish scriptures, the third person on earth, Cain, killed the fourth person, Abel, as a result of the failure to value one another and the differences between them. There is a general principle of decline in the world all around us. This may well include the tendency for these things needing balance to be divided from one another, leading to imbalance. We are constantly breaking apart things that need to be held together. The good life, then, will occur when these differences no longer serve as dividers, but as reasons to cooperate with and celebrate one another. The good society would embrace the diversity built into the world all around us. All people would be valued for who they are in their uniqueness. None would be held down, mistreated, or oppressed. All of our differences would be celebrated as beautiful expressions of the variety that makes life on this planet worth living. That society would rightly balance the ideas of hedonia and eudaimonia, pleasure and meaning, in a composite concept called wholeness. It is this cultural revolution that many are working toward. Will we ever achieve this superior society? It remains to be seen. While we wait for cultural change, however, we can be about the business of creating our own personal revolution, our good life. The good life for us as individuals is a life of congruence, authenticity, and purpose connected to happiness, both personal and collective. Striving and leading as our authentic self is the goal of the rest of this book. The goal of our personal revolution is a radical self-acceptance and affirmation of the goodness of who we are in all spheres of life, leaving no room for the debilitating effects of things in our past. This is the ideal toward which we move. Sadly, for many introverted leaders, life experiences to this point have not matched this vision. We've been acting out our part on the wrong stage, reading the wrong lines. Yang fictions about introversion. Most of us have many areas of confusion related to introversion in U.S. society. Cultural myths perpetuate the supremacy of the dominant cultural values, in this case, yang. In Western culture, introverts live under much misunderstanding and invalidation. Consider some common myths about introversion that our dominant culture, including introverts within it, often perpetuates. Introversion is shyness. Just as the news reporter wrongly used the words withdrawn and introverted as synonyms, to describe the behavior of the soldier who had moved away from his group, we often hear the word shy used as a synonym for introversion. The problem is that this completely misunderstands the nature of introversion and of shyness. Shyness is about anxiety, social phobia, a lack of social skills, and low self-esteem. Introversion, as we'll see, is not. Introverts sometimes prefer to be alone or with a few close friends. Shyness is a struggle that afflicts 40 to 50% of the U.S. population and is something that both introverts and extroverts can struggle with. Shy people are acutely self-conscious, which hinders them from the social relationships they seek. This experience is more painful for shy extroverts than for shy introverts. In any case, these two often confused aspects of personality in reality are not even correlated. Introverts are antisocial. Yang culture 
continues to attempt to connect introversion with people like the Unabomber or the perpetrators of famous school massacres. Introverts are portrayed as withdrawn loners living away from the rest of society, curmudgeons. Introverts are not antisocial. Most of us love people just in different doses and durations than extroverts. We normally want to have fewer, deeper relationships. We normally aren't drawn to huge gatherings of people. Most of us don't like small talk very much. When we find ourselves in a larger gathering, we'll usually find one person and move to the edge of the crowd. The best way to describe this way of being is that we are differently social. Introversion is a choice. We'll deal more in depth with this myth in chapter six. For now, please note that introversion is no more of a choice than any other hereditary trait. At least 50% and likely more of our introverted traits are the result of heredity. There seems to be a fairly uniform distribution of temperamental differences, including the introversion-extroversion trait that are simply assigned to us at birth. This explains why my family was composed of an extroverted father, an introverted mother, an extroverted brother, an introverted brother, an ambiverted sister, and me. The cycle continues. I married an ambivert, and together we have an ambiverted daughter, an extroverted daughter, and an introverted daughter. As their father, I could clearly see my daughter's different temperaments from early childhood. Introversion is curable. This is possibly the most irritating myth to face. Yang culture and its obsession with happiness and power are convinced there is something pathological about being introverted. Because it is often seen culturally as something to be cured, the psychological and psychiatric communities seek to include it as diagnostic criteria for various personality disorders and other mental health problems. In the international psychological community, introversion is already diagnosable. In case you're interested, the World Health Organization, WHO, has created two diagnoses that might alarm you. 301.21, introverted personality, and 313.22, introverted disorder of childhood. Fortunately, the attempts to add introversion into diagnostic criteria here in the U.S. have thus far failed, though not for lack of effort. While creating the most recent American Diagnostic Manual in 2013, proposals were submitted to the committee to have introversion included as a diagnostic component of several personality disorders similar to the WHO criteria. This sounds like conspiracy theory or paranoia, but sadly, it's not. There is a cultural agenda in the West that for some time now has sought to pathologize introversion and other related aspects of yin culture. Things like sadness, fear, submissiveness, non-aggression. If introversion is a normal and healthy way to be human, then obviously the attempts to pathologize it or to tell us we need to be cured of it, are futile, yet still irksome and hurtful. Introverts can't be leaders. This is the myth I encountered that evening at the conference banquet I've encountered many times and in many ways throughout my life. This is the heart of this book. 
This myth adds to the invalidation we feel as introverted people, often being seen as somehow deficient, another layer that claims we can't lead either. Many of the stories you've read and will read are derived from real-life accounts of introverts who have been told they can't lead by people using the extrovert ideal as a bogus filter. In addition to these five popular myths about introversion, there are many more Western cultural fictions and misunderstandings related to introversion. The nature of myths is that they are highly contagious and influence everyone, even those who suffer as a result of them. Introverted facts. The true nature of introversion is widely misunderstood in our culture. Three main areas of truth regarding introversion are helpful for all of us, introverts and extroverts alike, to increase our understanding. Knowledge is power. Introversion, contrary to popular myth, is about physiology, energy, and orientation. Introversion is physiological. How many of us have been told it's all in your head as it pertains to our introversion? People who don't understand what introversion is coach us to get over it. Since technology can show us the formerly mysterious inner workings of the human brain, it's now clear that differences between extroverts and introverts are not imagined but very real as determined by our biology. At its core, introversion is about sensitivity to outside stimulation. The key to understanding introversion begins at the base of the brain through something called the ascending reticular activating system, the ARAS. We all have one. This is the place where the spinal cord connects to the brain, where outside stimulation enters the brain after being retrieved from the senses. From that point on, the differences between extroverts and introverts are visible now that we have functional MRIs, positron emission topographical scans, and similar technologies. The physiology couldn't be more different. Ironically, it's all in your head appears to be quite accurate when taken more literally. Where extroverts and introverts differ is in the optimal level of arousal. There is an optimal level of arousal for human beings where we are neither understimulated, falling asleep, nor overstimulated, stressed out. Introverts and extroverts have different set points relative to that optimal level. Introverts run naturally at a much higher base level of arousal. As illustrated, they have to bring themselves down to the optimal level. Extroverts are the opposite. They run at a much lower base level of arousal and need to be pushed up to the optimal level to feel good. This is why the extrovert seeks outwardly stimulating experiences to feel better, closer to the optimal level, while the introvert avoids similar overly stimulating environments and prefers calmer, quieter experiences that allow them to come down to the optimal level. Obviously, ambiverts fall somewhere in between, more naturally near that optimal level. If this theory is correct, and there's good evidence to suggest it is, sensitivity to stimulation is the leading trait of introversion-extroversion. In addition to differences in terms of arousal set points, 
Introverts and extroverts' brains also follow different neural pathways in response to outside stimuli. Dr. Marty Olson Laney, the leading expert in understanding these differences, has helped to explain the importance of this biological reality, taking very complicated data from brain scans and simplifying it to assist our understanding. For extroverts, the path moves quickly through five areas, from the base of the brain where the spinal cord connects, through the hypothalamus, the thalamus, and the amygdala, where emotions connect with actions, straight to the temporal and motor areas of the brain. The introverted path is much longer and different. An introvert has a more circuitous path. The stimulus enters at the base of the brain as well, but follows a different path through the hypothalamus, the other side of the thalamus, through Broca's area where inner dialogue happens, the frontal lobe where thinking and reasoning happens, and then finally to the hippocampus and the amygdala where thoughts and feelings connect. This reality begins to help you understand why Sally sometimes has a deer-in-the-headlights look in her boss's famous brainstorming sessions. Her brain is pushing thoughts down a longer path through Broca's area and her frontal lobe and processing data in an entirely different manner and place in her brain than the extrovert sitting at the same table. Though some of her extroverted co-workers perceive her as having no thoughts on the subject, in reality, she has too much going on upstairs. If we wired her brain to show activity during the brainstorming, these different areas toward the front of her head would light up. Not only are there different neural pathways for introverts and extroverts, each also uses different neurotransmitters, brain chemicals, to process information. Introverts run primarily on the acetylcholine transmitter, which gives them a good feeling when thinking or feeling deeply. They have higher natural levels of dopamine, the chemical related to rewards that is released in conjunction with adrenaline in stimulating experiences, and are much more sensitive to surges of additional dopamine. Too much dopamine can actually feel painful, which is why many introverts avoid overstimulation. The activity and noise in a large room full of too many people has a real physiological trigger for introverts. Extroverts are different. They're naturally dopamine deficient and crave the release of adrenaline and dopamine, the rush that comes from excitement. They feel best when surrounded by lots of external stimulation. The same room that feels overwhelming to an introvert gives energy to an extrovert. Lastly, extroverts and introverts rely on different halves of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic or self-governing nervous system controls all the functions that we do without thinking, breathing, digesting, circulating. It's divided into two halves that ideally should work in good balance with each other. The parasympathetic system relies on acetylcholine and has to do with throttling down and restoring the body after action. The sympathetic nervous system works in the opposite direction. It uses dopamine and has to do with throttling up and preparing for action. These two halves of the autonomic system each have important functions. Balance in this regard is often lacking on either end of the temperamental spectrum. 
Extroverts tend to favor the sympathetic side, while introverts favor the parasympathetic. This may be a good argument for a slight advantage of ambiversion as a well-adjusted and well-balanced point between the two extremes. In summary, extroverts and introverts' brains and nervous systems function quite differently. The differences are not imaginary, but actual physiological variances. Introversion is about energy, where we get it, how we use it, and how we renew it. Introverts tend to generate energy from within, needing far less external stimulation. They also tend to use it up more readily, requiring more frequent renewal. You may have noticed that extroverts and introverts tend to recharge differently. It's as if we have two different kinds of batteries. For the extrovert who has a lower set point, the outside stimulation is a recharging and renewing experience. For the introvert who has a higher set point, the absence of outward stimulation and instead calming, peaceful experiences or even very active inward experiences are recharging and renewing. Many introverts renew in the process of turning inward toward deep thinking and contemplation. They may seek out a good book as a means of restoring energy. This does not mean, however, that the only way for an introvert to be refreshed is in isolation. For many introverts, books are like friends. Sometimes reading or spending time alone thinking or resting can be a renewing experience. Other introverts are more social. For them, spending quality time with a good friend and experiencing the good feelings that come with genuine relationships and deep thinking together can similarly recharge their batteries. Introversion is lastly a more inward orientation inclined toward the world of abstract thoughts and concepts. While driving with my wife, she would often ask me, are you okay? Apparently, my fully engaged brain was very active inwardly as I focused on my inner dialogue driving the car on autopilot. As I learned more about introversion, I began to understand and to explain to her that it's often loud and very active inside my head. The wheels are spinning as ideas or problems are being processed inwardly. I may not be saying anything, but it's not quiet inside. She and I have both learned that the constant internal dialogue seems to be the default setting, and if she needs my full attention, I need to flip a switch. Extroversion is often the opposite, with less internal noise, responding more to external stimuli. Extroverts tend to be more naturally in the moment and less distracted by inner dialogue. This inward orientation is, is a tremendous strength to be leveraged for introverts. Many complex problems require deep thinking and analysis that require sustained focus. Issues that involve abstract concepts and principles are the natural domain of introverts. As long as we manage this strength and listen to our significant others when they need us to, this inward focus is a beautifully rich place of ideas and concepts that we were made to live in. Introversion has nothing to do with shyness or being antisocial, is not pathological needing to be cured, and in no way disqualifies from leadership. 
It is a healthy physiological difference that runs on a different set point toward stimulation, has differing neural pathways and neurotransmitters, and has distinct energy management needs along with a rich inner life. It has absolutely nothing to do with the stereotypes about introverts that dominate our cultural landscape. Fiction needs to be separated from fact. Thanks, Andy. Wow, what an interesting topic. So I have a couple of questions for you. Um, okay. What got you interested in this topic? And, um, and was it when you got married? <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, it should have been when I got married, Steve, but it, it unfortunately wasn't. I've, I'm a slow learner in that regard. The, the topic really became of interest to me about beginning, I would say, eight or nine years ago. Um, frankly, when I was in the midst of some difficulties and trying to make sense out of what it meant to be a leader, and so this was very much a personal thing for me, digging into some various books and materials uh, that really began to help me better understand who I was. I grew up in an extrovert-friendly uh, family. My dad's an over-the-top extrovert, and my oldest brother is extremely extroverted. And so I think what was expected in my family growing up was extroversion. So you might have noticed, even as we interact today, I'm actually pretty good at faking it. Uh, I can look really extroverted if you don't know me, and I get that reaction all the time. You're not an introvert, and then I have to explain, yes, I am, and here's why. So yeah, very, very personal, and it was really about trying to understand and make sense of some personal experiences I had gone through. And now that I've done that work for me, uh, what I've really found is I get a lot of meaning helping other people on that same journey. So... What's your next book uh, going to be about? Well, I, I don't know what the next book is. I got to ask the wife whether I have a budget for one. Um, I, I've got lots of different ideas kicking around in my head. The next one might be, I don't know when it will come out. I've got a dissertation to write in the meantime. But after that, uh, a book that I've been playing around with for a little while is based on a, a fictional story of a guy who's on his way to a workplace retreat, those kind of leadership retreat sorts of things. And he falls asleep and has a dream and visits a uh, fictional zoo and interacts with lots of different characters that are all based around some of these metaphors that we have, you know, like sleeping dogs and, um, you know, dogs that can't learn new tricks, uh, all of those kinds of metaphors. And he interacts with those characters that... Uh, teach him different things about what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a healthy workplace team, and really trying to use that sort of a disarming story to, to perhaps create a book that would be really fun to do in a, in a corporate retreat setting. So, huh. But you can't monkey, monkey around with that <laughs> no, one. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> so what happened when, um, I mean, you put a lot of uh, research uh, into this book. Not yeah. everybody walks around talking about the hippocampus every day. So, <laughs> so w w what's with that? How much time did it take? Um, you know, how long did this book take? Or it's, uh, what, what, what happened there? Well, I've, I've been researching things related to introversion, like I said, probably beginning about eight or nine years ago. Um, I'm, uh, in addition to being an architect originally, I've had a pretty diverse career path. One of those things uh, that I've uh, 
undertaken as a, a master's degree in counseling. So I'm a licensed counselor. So some of the stuff around neurophysiology, I think, is somewhat related to my background in counseling. And then I'm currently uh, in the midst of a PhD program in organizational psych. So I'm I'm living quite a bit in articles that have more and more of a, of a uh, neurophysiological bent to them. Um, and I've been very intrigued for a number of years uh, related to things like emotional intelligence and such. Uh, neuroscience keeps moving forward, uh, gaining just new insights into the way our brains are designed and how we work. So it's a, sort of a personal fascination. But the, the research for this most recent book, probably in earnest, was about over a, the course of a year or so. Um, you know, just researching different kinds of books and articles and things of that nature to try to help me, you know, get a clearer picture of what this mysterious thing called introversion is. As Andy said, we're unique and amazing beings, but we don't want to get big-headed about who we are. Rich Madison provides personality perspective in one of his Today's Word blogs, titled Most Important. We live in a fast-paced society, and alongside of many who are trying to match its speed. There are those anxious to keep up with their neighbors, the Joneses, and those seeking a meteoric rise to fame through arts, sciences, positions in business, or status in society by birth or wealth. When we examine the hearts of these so bent, we find pride and presumption as the missteps in their pursuits. They undervalue other people, the sense of community and cooperation, and overvalue self's abilities and desires. They forget the essential ingredient of all truly great persons, humility. Their hearts drive them forward to be great, unique, and praised. This is exampled clearly by children who are placed on pedestals given more than any could desire and thrust onto stages for which they are not prepared. They make foolish decisions that lead them into much pain. Where should we be as true believers in Jesus? David responded to this situation by saying, I have stilled and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Psalm 131.2 This is a picture of a child who no longer yearns for what he or she used to find indispensable. The child is freed from a heart that is self-seeking and from the bondage to any desire or person. Stilled is the ability to rest from pursuits. Release your hands from the reins and consider your direction. It is to stop and take stock of your speed, direction, and altitude, much like a pilot who is constantly surveying his instruments to see that he is on course. Quieted is to cease from hearing the charge of your own voice and the voices of others eager to push push you forward. It is to silence those voices so that you can hear the most important, still, small voice of God speak into your life. How can you accomplish the stillness and quietness in your life when all around you there is noise? You must humble yourself before the God of the universe, confessing pride and presumption and asserting his dominance in your world. There is no greater task for a disciple than to humble yourself before God, because it brings perspective to life and inner rest to your soul. Consider your speed and noise 
today. One more thought about humility comes from an unknown author who said, Humility leads to strength and not to weakness. It is the highest form of self-respect to admit mistakes and to make amends for them. Here are a couple more personality quotes. Bill Hybels, God often reveals his direction for our lives through the way he made us with a certain personality and unique skills. Norvin McGranahan said, When a man begins to understand himself, he begins to live. When he begins to live, he begins to understand his fellow men. That's all for Podcast 21. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.